But if you could take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 4, it's page 1012 in your church Bible. We're going to wrap up what has been a little two-part series from James 4. We looked at the first three verses of James last week. We're going to look at James 4, 4 through 10 today. And again, the theme of, of James 4 is how do you deal with anger? And last week, we looked at uh, the first three verses of James 4, and it described to us that anger is not out there. Your problem with anger is not that you have difficult people you work with, difficult people in your family. The anger starts within you, okay? The quarrels and fights that we have with other people are started in us because we have desires, James tells us. We want something We're not getting what we want, and we're angry about it. We've got a goal. That goal is blocked. That's what makes us angry. And when we don't allow the sort of the best desires, a desire for God, that that would be more important than these other desires, we are going to be angry people almost every single time. We can't help it. James also talked uh, about in verses 2 and 3 of James 4 is that prayer has a connection with your anger. We have not because we ask not. In other words, some of the goals that we have that are good that we're not getting is because we're not asking God to do it. We think we can control it all. But then James goes on to say, we, we ask and do not receive because we ask wrongly. Sometimes we treat God as if he's Santa Claus. I've got a desire. I pray to God to make it happen, even if it's a good desire. And we expect God to work. But sometimes God knows best and he delays And he doesn't always give us what we want when we want it. And part of our problem of our prayer life is we're not praying big enough prayers. Sometimes what you need to pray for is wisdom to know what God is up to. Sometimes you need to pray for endurance as God doesn't give you these desires on your timetable. So now we move to verses 4 through 10. And um, before we dive in, let me read the first 10 verses of James 4. So follow along. And we'll dive into the second section here um, in just a second. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is God's word. It was interesting last, last week. I got a lot of emails from a lot of you about anger. You're angry. 
and they weren't angry emails towards me, but you had a lot of questions about anger. And I want to deal with one of those questions right up front, and then I'll get into the text. Some of you, as, as I talked about anger, you, you, you certainly said, yeah, I see that my desires and my blocked goals uh, make me angry. But what about righteous anger? You know, doesn't the Bible say in Ephesians 4, uh, be angry and sin not? And, uh, and, and, you know, I, and sometimes I'm angry, but maybe it's, it's not always wrong. And I, I agree with that. You can be righteously anger, angry. Uh, if you're angry about what God is concerned about, that's righteous anger. And, and in my life, I've, I've known Christ for about 50 years. And I've had righteous anger six times. And 17 seconds after I got righteously anger, it devolved into worldly anger. I mean, that's the issue. Yes, sometimes you do get angry because you see an injustice. Sometimes you do get angry because you see sin and, and, and you're grieved by that. And sometimes God uses that to motivate you. James, on the other hand, is concerned not about that. He's concerned about what is probably mostly our problem is that all of us are not necessarily exhibiting righteous anger. We've got anger. Maybe it started out righteous, but it has devolved into something very different. So anyway, thanks for those notes. And um, sorry to rain on your righteous anger parade. Um, but uh, anyway, let's dive into the text. What, what's interesting about James 4, 4 through 10 is what James is going to do in this section is he's going to remind us about two actions of God. In other words, if we're going to respond to our life in a less angry way, in a more godly way, we need to understand from James 4, 4 through 10 about the, the fact that God is doing two things all the time. We're going to see those things. What is God doing? We need to start with what God is doing to help us, so to speak, in our anger. And then what James is going to do is going to give us a series of commands, a series of responsibilities that we need to take action and be held accountable to. Along with the, 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 the understanding of what God's doing, then we need to respond to what God is doing with a series of commands in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. And so let's take a look at that. Let's look at the two actions that God, uh, that God does that are crucial for us to understand and act on if we're going to deal with our anger. Let's look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? This is not the easiest verse to translate from the original Greek. I think the ESV has it about right. You can read in some translations that, that some translators think that the yearning jealously is what we do. I think the ESV has it right. It's talking about God yearns or desires jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. This action of God, what James is describing to us, is that God is jealous over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. In other words, God is jealous to have us orient our whole life around him. He wants every part of our life. He wants every part of our life to be conformed to his desires, his goals, his purposes. Now, I know it might seem weird when he, when he says God is jealous, but you see this all over the Old Testament. God was jealous over the people of Israel. He wanted Israel, who was, who was known to be the betrothed of God. He wanted their hearts to be knitted to his heart in obedience and in submission to him and orient all of their life to him. When it says here he yearns jealously, it's not that God is some kind of an insecure God. 
And he's always jealous. I don't want you to be with anyone else. I want you to be the only mine. No, he wants us and all of us because he's rightfully jealous over us. God made us for him. He made us to know him. He made us to serve him. He made us so that we could understand him and have a relationship with him. He made us to rule the world, the little part of the world we've been given authority over. He wanted us to rule it under his authority. Now, this text is, when it says he yearns jealousy, it's not that God is a megalomaniac here. You know, I want all of your affection for me. No, he, God knows that he made us for him. And he knows that unless we put all of our hopes in God, if we put our identity completely in him alone, if we, if we put our hopes and dreams in him alone, that is the only way for us to be content, joyful, not so angry. Because all of our life, our hopes, our dreams, our identity is put in him alone. He knows that's the only way for us to live, particularly in a broken world. And therefore, he is jealous to have all of us submitted to him and oriented around who he is and his purposes for us. He wants all of us. That's why he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. Now, it's important to go back to verse 4. Because this sort of helps us understand what James is saying in terms of our anger. Verse 4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Then he says he yearns jealously over his spirit he's made to dwell in us. What James is trying to help us understand is that when we approach God in this way, in other words, I'm, I love God, I want to worship God, but I can't be content unless I have God plus X. I can't be fully content with God if I don't have God plus a career that's advancing well. I can't be fully content, fully joyful, unless I have God plus a spouse. Or God plus my academic career proceeds. God plus good kids that are productive and and are growing and developing appropriately. I I can't really be fully content unless God gives me a, a great marriage. It's God plus something. And what James says, this is spiritual adultery. Verse 4, you adulterous people. He's not talking about... Uh, unfaithfulness in, in, in marriage. He's talking about spiritual adultery. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? In other words, if you have to have something that the world offers, even if it's a good thing, this is not necessarily a bad thing. Career, home, security, money, uh, spouse, children who, who are productive. And, and those aren't bad things. But if you can't be content, if you cannot be not angry, so to speak, discontented. You can't be at peace with God alone. If it's always got to be God plus something, you have become a friend of the world. You're cozying up with the world. You're basically saying, God is not enough for me. Never forget, I was, um, I was traveling with my family, uh, all three of my kids, and uh, Denise and myself, and we had the privilege of meeting someone on our travels. <coughs> Excuse me. We, I, we, we met this couple 
She's a husband and wife and two uh, little boys. And uh, this family had newly come to Jesus Christ in the last year. And because of where, where they lived, their family ostracized them and, and threw them out of the house and threw them out of the town because they started to follow Jesus Christ. So here you have this young couple, two kids. Their family has turned on them because of Jesus Christ. They, he lost his job in town because he followed Jesus Christ. He, a month before I met him that night, our family met him, he was living in a cave. And there was a few family members that would at least go and give them food. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made it. They now had had to move all the way away from their hometown because it was dangerous because their lives were threatened. Their lives were threatened because they had decided to follow Jesus Christ. He had had no job. He had no money. He's now way far away from his hometown, and he's trying to resettle in a new town, but it's going to be very difficult to get a job there because he has no family connections that will vouch for him in the new town that he is now living in order to try to survive and be safe. Now, what was crazy about this conversation is this husband and wife who have none of the things that we would say are good things that that are not bad, security, peace, house, enough money to live on, a job, a career, family. They don't have any of those things, and yet they are the most contented, joyful people I ever met. They were so thankful that God had saved them. They can't believe that Jesus Christ died for them. They, I kept asking them, well, what are you going to do? How are you? We don't know, but Jesus died for me. He's going to watch out for us. And I almost felt like saying, you're crazy. What's the plan here? Jesus died for us. We are so thankful for him. But they've lost everything because of Jesus. And they had. But you see, that couple, unlike me, was putting all of his identity, all of his hopes, all of his dreams, everything about him that he thought was most important, he had put all of that in God alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And therefore, while he didn't have anything that the world says is important, he was content, at peace, because he loved God. And he was letting this God who yearns jealously over his spirit who dwells in us, he was putting all of his hope, all of his contentment, all of his identity was wrapped up in God alone. That's what we learn about God. That's what God wants. Not because he's trying to confine you. He's trying to liberate you. It's not because God's trying to take things away from you. He wants to liberate you. He knows that if you can become content in God alone, you will be a person who, will, who, who can deal with anger. You can be a person who de- deals with deprivation. You will be content. You will be at peace. You will be a fundamentally different person because you will put all of your life and you will wrap it up in God plus nothing. That's the first thing we learn about God. That's the first thing we see that God is doing. Now, there's a second thing that God does, a second action of God we need to understand before we get to the commands that we need to be involved in, and that's in verse 6. James says, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What we need to see from this is that God gives more grace. 
I know a lot of you struggle with anger. We all struggle with anger. You struggle with these blocked goals that, 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 that you have, and, and, and you're angry about it. And, and, and the, the beauty here is God gives more grace. He gives you grace to help you overcome these blocked goals and desires. He gives you grace so that you will orient your entire life more consistently in him. And then he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is what we need to understand about God. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives power, strength, unmerited gifts of, of, of power and strength to help you be the person you need to be. Now, this is vitally important for us to understand what this means. When it says he gives grace to the humble, you need to understand what that word humility means. There are two parts to this word in the original. One part of humility is to recognize this. God is the creator and you are a creature. I I know this sounds elementary, but that's not what we believe. That's not how we act. In other words, part of humility is says God's the creator and I'm not. I'm a creature, not the creator. God has a plan. He's working his plan. He knows best what I need at any given moment. His plan is the right timing for me. And therefore, I trust him when my blocked goals happen rather than get angry to try to make them happen on my timetable. And the dirty little secret is for most of us, one of the reasons you are angry about stuff is you really deep down think you know best. You do. I know I do. I'd like to tell God how to run his universe. Sometimes I say it in prayer. But I have to be reminded, I'm a creature. He's the creator. I don't know best. My plan may not be best. God is the creator. I'm a creature. And therefore, I will have humility when my goals are blocked. Rather than getting angry because I think I must fulfill this, acknowledge I'm a creature. He's the creator. I trust you. I don't need to have so much confidence in me. But there's more to the humility. Because humility also means that I understand I'm a sinner and I'm in desperate need of grace. That's what being humble means. If you're truly humble, you realize I need the grace of God. I don't deserve God's love. I can't earn my way. I desperately need God's grace. And in fact, I need God's grace as much as the next person, particularly the person who's blocking your goal. Oh, the self-righteousness of Christians. I've grown up in church. I'm a pastor's kid. I knew what I was getting into. We are so self-righteous when we get angry. Somebody blocks our goal and we immediately think about how crazy they are. I need to fix that person and I need to tell them off and I need to tell them what for so they can understand because I understand perfectly because I clearly understand everything about everything. Instead of humbly saying, I need God's grace just like this other person. He doesn't need it any more than I do. We both need it. And it brings you humility before you. It's amazing. I've, I, every once in a while, I, I see some of your children acting up in the atrium. It brings me great joy to see you suffering. But this is really the story, isn't it? Not. I mean, even when I was a very young boy, five or six years old, 
There were moments I thought my, uh, my parents were, I, th I thought they were just in incompetent. They didn't get it. I mean, how could these people who've lived on the earth for so long not get it? I'm five, I see it clearly. We do the same thing, don't we? We get angry at somebody. We got a goal that we think is really important, might be even good. It doesn't happen when we want it, and we want it, we want to tell God what to do and get angry with him because he doesn't know what he's doing. We get mad at all the people blocking our goals because we have the understanding, we clearly get it, and the people who pose us, we turn them into the worst kind of Christian. Oh, they're, they're terrible. If you're really humble, you will remind yourself often, I'm a creature, he's the creator. I'm in desperate of need of God's grace just like everybody around me. It's not they need it more than me. We're all on the same boat. That brings humility. Now, that's what God does. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. We need to remember that. We also need to remember that he yearns jealously over his spirit he has made to dwell in us. Those two actions of God are crucial for you to remember and to believe and to trust God in his actions. But now we get verse 7. We get to what we need to do. These are commands that, 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 that God gives us. And I think specifically, they are, they, these commands are important for all of our spiritual life, but specifically because it's in a context of dealing with anger. I think these commands have real specific application to dealing with your anger. And it's interesting that each one of the imperatives here, each one of these commands, it, it's, in the, it's in the aorist in the Greek, which means you need to start doing what this command tells you to do. There's a real sense almost when James is writing this. When you find yourself angry, when you're in the midst of getting angry because you've got a block goal, you better start doing these things immediately in order to get back on the right track, in order to be able to handle the anger in a more God-centered way. So let's take a look at a number of these commands. And I would like just to summarize all of these commands and summarize them this way. Particularly when you're angry, you need to focus on your own spiritual life, not the spiritual life of the other people that are getting in your way. All right? There's a real, real call here and with all of these commands is saying, listen, when you're angry, when your goals are blocked, you need to focus on your spiritual life and not the spiritual life of everybody else who you think is blocking your vision, blocking your desires, blocking your goals. So let's look at verse 7. It says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. When you find yourself angry, you need to be remembering to order your life under the authority of God. That word submit means to rightly order yourself under authority. It means you need to be careful that you are, you are obeying God to the fullest and most comprehensive situation. When we are angry, we tend to be more concerned about the other person and what they need to do and what they need to fix and how they need to submit to God in these 47 ways rather than thinking about well, what do I need to do here? Now, let me ask you a question. Do, do any of you, when you get angry, do, you, do any of you talk to yourself? Anybody want to raise your hand and say you do that? There's a few brave people. I didn't realize I did this. 
I remember my dad was very angry. Something happened in the church where he was at. He was really angry. We were on vacation. And I watched my dad on the beach at Myrtle Beach. And he was just walking on the beach by himself. And he was just... Just you know, he's gesticulating and he's, he's saying something, but there's nobody with him. I thought my dad's nutty. I said, "Dad, what are you doing?" He says, "Well, I guess I'm talking to somebody." Oh yeah, the person you're angry. He says, "Yeah, I'm, I'm making a lot of sense." Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you were. And I remember telling my wife, "That's crazy," and she goes, "You do it." I do. Oh yeah, I've heard you. In the, I've heard you in the shower. Yeah, I had to realize I do it. I want to tell the person who's blocking my goal, I want to tell them exactly what they need to know. And in my imaginary conversations, I'm really good. In my imaginary conversations, the person falls prostrate before me eventually and says, you're right, Tracy. How can I not see your brilliance? But again, I'm thinking about all the things they need to hear. I'm thinking about all the things they need to understand. And what James is saying in a context of anger, hey, before you get so concerned about your neighbor and their sin or your family member or your spouse, are you submitted to the Lord in all the areas you ought to be? What's out of kilter in your life? Submit yourselves. To the Lord. Now, there's another command here in verse 7. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What we need to understand is that spiritual warfare, <coughs> Satan is very invested in getting conflicts to, to, to take off and continue. I mentioned Ephesians 4 before. It says, you know, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Uh, don't give the devil an opportunity. Satan loves to, to move into a conflict and exacerbate it for everybody involved. Ephesians 6 talks about we wrestle not against flesh and blood. In other words, our real conflict is not with other people so much. It's with the personal source of evil, Satan, who is exacerbating the situation to create conflict. So we need to resist the devil. To bring to bear the power of God's word in the particular conflict or the particular anger that we're in. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Fascinating text. When you're angry, you need to draw near to God. You need to pursue God more. It, anger probably is an indication that you are not getting your full contentment from God alone. You are not getting your full hopes and dreams or not really fully invested in God. You need God plus something else. You're not getting something else. So now you're angry. Anger should often be the, call, the sort of the clarion call for you to refocus and re-pursue this God. Draw near to God. And, they, and you know, James tells us he, he will draw near to you. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Cleanse your hands means make sure that you're asking for forgiveness for the actual behavior that is in the middle of your anger that is not right. It's your external behavior. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. I remember this uh, one uh, family uh, and uh, knew about their situation. They had a high schooler who was struggling. 
I, I think there was probably some mental illness as well, but there was a spiritual problem. And they were having very much difficulty trying to get their child to go to school, do the homework, do chores, be responsible, to be respectful. He, the, the kid was just really struggling. And every day was just a constant battle. You know, from the minute the kid was up in the morning to the time he went to bed, it was a battle. It was a war. And they went to some Christian counseling, and the Christian counselor told this couple, you need to make sure that you are apologizing to your son every time you do something wrong. And the parents were like, really? He's doing 57 things wrong a day, and we're doing two. The counselor says, do the right thing. Ask for forgiveness for the times in which you raise your voice or the times in which you're a little too snarky, your attitude's not right. You live the gospel no matter what your child does. So they decided to do it. They were going to cleanse their hands. For 30 days, according to them, for 30 days, the child would do 57 things, disrespectful, not schoolwork, constant battle. The parents kind of held it together, but eventually would raise their voice, and they ended up apologizing for the two or three things they did every day, and this went on for 30 days. Finally, one night, after another 57 things their child did wrong, and the child never apologized for anything. 30 days into this, another thing happened. Right before everyone was to go to bed, the, the child was snarky and disrespectful, and, and the parent did just a little bit, had a snarky attitude back. Anyway, they're all in bed. The parent says, you know what? I'm going to go apologize to our son. And, and, the, and the spouse said, the other spouse said, no, you will not. They've done a hundred things wrong today. You've done hardly anything. No. And he said, I need to do it. So he goes back, goes upstairs, knocks on the door of his son's room. He says, listen, I had a bad attitude again. Will you forgive me? And the son <laughs> looked at his dad and said, you know, I was just about to come downstairs and say I was sorry for what I just did. And then the father had a heart attack and died. No. <laughs> <laughs> when you're angry, you need to focus on what do you need to cleanse your hands of? What is the external behavior? And it doesn't matter if the other person who's blocking your goals has done 150 things and you've done two. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. He also then goes on to say, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleansing your hands is your external behavior. Purifying uh, your hearts, you double-minded, is, is asking God to forgive you for the double-mindedness that you have in your own mind and heart. I think he's sort of referring back to this idea that part of the reason we're angry is God can't be enough for us. We need God plus something. And so we cozy up to the world, even with, with, with what the world offers. It's, it's not particularly evil. It's not wrong to have peace, security, a home, a job, etc. But we have to have those things in, in the way that we want them. And when our allegiance to God is divided like this in our hearts, we have to deal with that. We have to recognize, I am committing spiritual adultery. I am not completely connected uh, to, to God alone. My identity is not completely in Him. Because if it was, I could be content with Him plus nothing else. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
He goes on, verse 9, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We ought to be grieved about our sin. I think it would be good for all of us. Uh, I don't think we live in a culture in a particular time that, 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 that really practices grieving for your sin. You know, we just want to, it's kind of like, me, I, I don't know, do you, do you ever do this to your kids? I, this is what I did. I don't, I don't think this is necessarily good, but my k- kids would be fighting, you know, and I would get, come in there and be a peacemaker, and I would say, now say you're sorry. And they would look at their brother or their sister, I'm sorry. Now, do you say you forgive them? I forgive you. Oh, we've lived the gospel in our home. Isn't it wonderful? Sometimes we're a little too flippant, you know. Oh, Lord, forgive me for that. We would probably all do well. I'm not advocating some kind of sinister, overly, you know, guilty conscience where you can't leave your house because you're overwhelmed with your sin. But I think most of us, given the culture that we live in, would do a lot better, particularly when we find ourselves angry, to sit and think a little bit more and grieve a little bit more about the ways in which we have not been the people we ought to be. As believers in Jesus Christ, one mark of humility would be we are much more ready to admit our need of God's grace and the specific indications of the the hands that we have done things that we need to be cleaned of and the double-minded heart we need to be delivered from. And then lastly, verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We're back to, now this is a command. It's not simply what God does. God opposes the proud, gets raised to the humble. This is saying, you humble yourself. It would probably be good for some of you to, to maybe to put a little note on your, you know, in your lunch. You know, maybe put it in your Bible. Maybe tape it to your forehead, okay? This says this, I'm a creature. I'm not the creator. Or maybe to put down, I need God's grace as much as anyone else. Maybe more. Humble yourself. Acknowledge your creatureliness. You don't have all the information. You, 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 your plan and your goals that may be blocked and you're angry about them, your plan actually may not be the wisest course of action for the universe. Now, I know that's hard. I don't understand God. I've got lots of things I've prayed and asked God for that I think would be good things. And he hasn't answered those requests yet. I don't know. I get frustrated. I show him the timetable from time to time. But am I going to be a creature? Because that's who I am. Am I going to be a person who acknowledges I need God's grace like everybody else? Or will I continue to talk to myself in my shower and tell these people everything they need to know because they need God's grace a lot more than me? Am I going to be telling God and my heart, I know best how to run this universe and because the universe isn't running the way I want it, I'm angry. I'm discontented. Frustrated. Now, here's the encouragement. The encouragement for all of us, those of us who know Christ, is that we, the encouragement is to remind yourself of what God said earlier in this text. 
He yearns jealously over his spirit he's made to dwell in you. He wants all of you. And if you would give him everything in your life, you will be content and at peace. If your identity and hopes or dreams are wrapped up in him. He also says he will give you more grace. If you're an angry person, he will give you more grace. He, he wants to help you. He will help you. But, but you've got to be humble because God opposes proud because grace is the humble. And he gives you the grace to do these commands by his grace, by his power to help you deal with the anger. And of course, he's given us a great model in Jesus Christ. You want to talk about humility? <laughs> he was God. Right? Jesus was God himself and he puts on a human body and comes to earth, fully God and fully man. He humbles himself in order to rescue you from your sin. He, in some sense, he gave up the independent exercise of his divinity. He was still God. Notice what Jesus does. He drew near to God, his father. He was always going to God, the father, praying, asking for direction. He humbled himself. He resisted the devil. I mean, Jesus and Satan went one-on-one, right? Jesus quotes back scripture every time, pushing him back, resisting the evil one. He humbled himself. And that's what we celebrate at the Lord's table here. We take the bread, we drink the cup. We're reminding ourselves, what did God do in order to rescue us and bring him back to us? And when we see that the God of the universe can humble himself, how can we not as creatures simply admit we're creatures, not the creator? How can we not admit I need God's grace as much as the other people who are blocking my goals? Why can't we draw near to God when we're angry and, and, and put our identity back into God plus nothing? And Jesus is our model and Jesus is where we get that grace. That grace that he offers to each of us who've put our faith and trust in Christ alone to save us from our sin based on his death for us. So in a minute, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. As you take the bread, as you take the cup, remind yourself of what God did for you. I hope that this will drive you back to put your hopes and dreams and identity in God alone. I hope this will remind you of the fact that God uh, in Jesus humbled himself as a way to encourage you to humble yourself. I also hope as you take the bread and and drink the cup to realize that God will give you more grace and he will give you the grace to follow these commands. You're not supposed to do all these commands, submit, resist, and and draw near to God and cleanse your hands and purify your hearts and humble yourself. Those commands are not given to you so that you would try in your own strength to accomplish them. He gives more grace, it says, to be able to follow these commands. You're not alone. So as we prepare to celebrate communion, I I want to welcome anyone who has has put their faith and confidence in Christ alone to partake with us. If you've never trusted Christ yet, you don't need to take the elements. You can pass them on. We'd love to talk to you more about how to put your faith and confidence in Christ alone. During the uh, bread is passed out, we will all hold it together. We will partake together. There will be 
quiet during the distribution of the bread in order for us to confess our sin, to remind ourselves of God's grace. And the music team will be leading us in song when the cup is distributed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. As I pray, I'd like to ask the uh, servers to come forward. Let me pray in preparation for communion. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you did humble yourself. You put on a human body, fully God and fully man, and came down to earth to die in our place, to receive the punishment that we deserved, and you took it upon yourself. I thank you, Lord, that through your death and resurrection, we have hope for forgiveness of sins. We have hope for a life with you today, but also forever. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that not only did you model to us in real time what humility really looks like, you promised to give us more grace even today to handle the blocked goals, the blocked desires, the brokenness of our world, and you promise to give us, for those that are, that are humble, for, for those that are not proud, you promise to give us grace to be able to handle these situations in ways that would be honoring to you. I pray that you would help each of us, those of us who know Christ as your Savior, Lord. I pray that you would help us to root our identity and our purpose and our hopes in you alone. Because you yearn jealously over the spirit you have made to dwell in us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember that you promised to give us grace when we humble ourselves and honestly acknowledge that we are creatures, not the creator, and we are sinners in need of God's grace. And Lord, I pray that because of your grace, that you would help us to obey these commands, that we would respond to your loving kindness, that we would respond to your grace through obedience, empowered by your grace, and that we would submit more of our lives to your word. I pray that we would resist the evil one in the midst of anger. I pray that we would draw near to God and, and that you would draw near to us. I pray that you would help us to, to grieve over our sin and to humble ourselves. as an expression of our response to God, but also as people who are being obedient to God and that you would help us that while we live in a culture that's increasingly angry and a culture that's increasingly polarized, I pray that we, as your people, would live markedly different lives in terms of anger. That we would be a place where you, by your grace, are transforming us and we begin to respond to each other and to you and our blocked goals and our blocked desires in a more Christ-honoring, Christ-centered way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.